Hello everyone and welcome to HR Works COVID-19 update. We really appreciate you taking time out of your busy day to join us. I'm the host of HR Works, Jim Davis, and the editor of the HR Daily Advisor. It has been a few months since we discussed workplace policies surrounding testing, and since that time, testing has become more widespread and available. Uh, recent news has also offered us perhaps our first breath of fresh air in quite some time. There are two viable vaccines that have been successfully developed. Um, all indications is that they are safe and effective. In addition to discussing the state of testing right now, we will discuss what these vaccines mean for our employers, what kind of timeframes we're talking about, and to what extent vaccines will help mitigate COVID-19. Uh, we're pleased to have back with us on the show today, Dr. Sri Chikuduru, Chief Medical Officer for CVS Caremark, the pharmacy benefits management business for CVS. He focuses on enhancing the quality of services provided to millions of its members and patients, while also contributing to the overall mission of CVS Health. Most recently, he was Chief Population Health Officer at Partners Healthcare. In this role, he led the Systems Accountability Care Organization, one of the largest in the nation, serving over 600,000 lives. Previously, he was a healthcare consultant at McKinsey & Company. He is a practicing internal medicine physician at Massachusetts General Hospital and a lecturer at Harvard Medical School. His articles have appeared in publications such as New England Journal of Medicine, JAMA, and Health Affairs. Thank you so much, Sri, for joining us again today. My pleasure. So we just all saw the news recently. Pfizer and Moderna both said that their vaccines are very promising. I think one had like a 94, 95% success rate uh, or effective rate, and the other one was 90%. Are they as promising as they sound? Uh, what's that going to look like? And are there, I understand there's other vaccines in the works too. Are those coming online sometime soon? Yeah, Jim, it's a great question. It is incredibly exciting. This, uh, if we sort of step back and think about where we are in terms of the science, uh, we only first identified uh, the coronavirus late last year. We only sequenced the genome uh, in uh, early winter and around February of this year, and here we are in November with over 200 different candidates for vaccines that are being investigated and that our team is tracking at CVS Caremark. And so, you know, just an incredible concentration of scientific inquiry and discovery during this time. And so if we think about that, um, the progression in vaccine science, we are um, now have two potential viable candidates, and we'll talk a little bit further about that. But moving forward, we will have multiple candidates, and that is an exciting but also challenging prospect as we think about how do we ensure that the right patient gets the right vaccine at the right time. Um, and specifically, when it gets to um, the types of vaccines, there's multiple different technologies. And happy to talk about those uh, various technologies that uh, manufacturers are using. But the technology that Pfizer and Moderna are using are uh, a new uh, technology that allows for uh, rapid scale up of production and discovery. Specifically, these are genetic vaccines. And if we think about what um, the coronavirus looks like, corona means crown. And for any of us, um, if, if you can remember those pictures that are used in a lot of um, uh, print and, and web publications, that coronavirus, that crown is those spikes, those generally depicted as yellow spikes on the top of, uh, of the virus. And that uh, spike has turned out to be a very 
particularly interesting target for training our immune system so that uh, by training our immune system to identify that spike or S protein, uh, when if somebody were to be infected, uh, they, uh, the immune system would quickly identify that spike protein and then help to clear the virus or mitigate the progression of the virus's ability to replicate in the body. Um, and so these genetic vaccines that Pfizer and Moderna have are injecting the genetic code into the body, which then uses the molecular machinery within the human body to create the spike protein. So we're injecting RNA, and if we remember from our biology, RNA turns into proteins, and then those proteins are trained by our immune system. So really exciting technology. You know, the particular um, aspects about these genetic, uh, these RNA vaccines, is that the RNA is packaged into um, uh, an envelope that envelope generally requires cold storage uh, and so we've heard about those cold storage requirements um, what we are seeing from the data from Pfizer and Moderna is uh, increasing clarity on how what temperatures that these vaccines need to be at uh, how long can they be on ultra cold uh, versus um, cold versus refrigerated, um, but they, you know, move, keeping the logistics aside, what we're seeing in the data is that um, that's being reported by um, public announcement as of the time that we're recording here in the middle of November. Um, we're waiting for the formal publication of this data in peer-reviewed literature, but is that uh, there's a 90% uh, approximately for Pfizer and a 94.5% um, for Moderna uh, efficacy. The FDA had uh, stated that they, as part of their emergency youth author use authorization, they wanted a minimum of 50%. So this has been substantially higher efficacy in preventing uh, COVID transmission in the uh, intervention arms of the trials. Um, the reason that the data has not been published yet is largely because the other criteria that the FDA has asked for, which is two months of safety data. So we expect that later in November, the safety data, we'll have two months of safety data from Pfizer. Later in December, we'll have the two months of safety data from Moderna. So we'll see um, the process initiated with the FDA and then uh, as well as the publication uh, in peer-reviewed literature uh, and then availability of these vaccines in the marketplace. I'm definitely going to want to talk about the availability in a second, but let's just back up real quick and talk about those efficacy rates. Not everyone will necessarily understand what that means. Does that mean that uh, if you give 100 people you know, this vaccine, 90% of them will what develop antibodies or will be immune? What does it really mean? So it's a great question uh, in uh, terms of uh, trying to explain what the definition of effectiveness is. So uh, as we had mentioned, the FDA is saying 50% uh, effective. What that specifically means 
is that it's 50% more effective than placebo. So if uh, 100 people received, uh, had, um, uh, were infected with coronavirus in the placebo arm, then that means only 50% uh, got um, COVID uh, in the intervention arm. What we're seeing in these trials is that with Pfizer, um, you know, only 10% uh, had COVID um, and then um, compared to placebo. And then in Moderna, it's 95% um, lower rate of getting COVID than placebo. So if 100 people got it in the placebo arm, in the Pfizer trial, only 10%, uh, 10 people got it, or in the Moderna, only five people got it. Those numbers that I just stated are uh, examples. Uh, we'll see the final data when it's published, but hopefully that sort of helps explain in a more plain English way how to think about that term effectiveness. Is it similar to the flu, uh, the various flu vaccines that come out every year where, you know, on the one hand, it'll help prevent people from getting COVID in the first place, but in instances where people get COVID, it'll reduce the severity of the illness? So uh, great. Um, so there's sort of two components to that question, which is, um, you know, how similar is this to flu uh, in terms of protection? And then there's two components. Does it prevent you from getting infection? And if it doesn't prevent, you know, for those people who do still get it, um, COVID, will there be less intensity of disease, right? Will it be a, uh, a milder case of COVID than if you had not received the vaccine? Let's start with that second piece. Um, you know, the plausibility is that um, because you are, if you look at the early phase two data, you do see that people are mounting an immune response by getting these vaccines. That immune response should help with managing the uh, infection if you did get infected with COVID. So it might not completely uh, prevent, but it should ameliorate or lessen severity. But we can't definitively say that until we see the final data that comes out. So. I share that as a scientific hope and uh, an area of scientific plausibility that even if you do get COVID with the vaccine, uh, that you should have um, uh, or ideally will have less intense disease. One of the things that's different, um, so the second component of your question is related to flu. Um, flu vaccines generally have lower efficacy rate but that's because the flu vaccine is constant, uh, or the flu is constantly mutating, and there's what we call genetic drift. So when we create those vaccines, we're trying to predict genetically what the drift will look like and uh, produce uh, a vaccine that will elicit an immune response. And some years we're more successful than others in terms of creating a flu vaccine that is protective and reduces intensity and transmission of the flu. With COVID, what we've seen is that there's a lot more genetic stability in that S protein. So 
the again we're um, just at a year in understanding this uh, virus, um, but and even though there's been some genetic um, mutations, it doesn't appear to be all that significant. So these vaccines should generally be pretty stable from year to year and should have high rates of efficacy from year to year as well. Again, we're only one year in, so this story will continue to evolve, but um, that's our best guesses based on the science right now. It sounds really promising. You know, it seems like everything we're looking for. So the next question is, um, will this be widely available? What, when, who's going to get it first? I know all the employers are going to be saying, all right, <laughs> we want our employees back at work. Let's get them this vaccine as soon as possible. And, and we're done. Everything's over. Yep. So, um, on availability, each of the manufacturers have been, um, uh, uh, working on, uh, their manufacturing uh, alongside the process of scientific discovery and clinical trials, which has helped us accelerate um, the whole process of vaccine development. Generally, much uh, building out manufacturing occurs, but not to the extent that we're doing right now uh, uh, during um, the pandemic. That acceleration has been due to one, the um, commitment by manufacturers to accelerate um, manufacturing, but also for most of the manufacturers, a co-investment through an initiative called Operation Warp Speed to help de-risk the manufacturing process. So the uh, government has committed to buying a uh, vaccine when it becomes available, which then allows manufacturers to ramp up uh, um, the production of these vaccines um, prior to approval from the FDA. What we're seeing generally is that there'll be, you know, approximately 20 million doses or so that would be available uh, by both Pfizer and Moderna when when they're um, uh, they receive their EUA, and the production will look anywhere between, um, you know six to 10 million doses uh, a week for one of the manufacturers. Another one might hit about um, uh, five to seven million doses. Uh, and that those numbers could change. But uh, if you think about the availability, uh, we'll have millions of doses, um, but it will take us months before we will have enough doses to cover our uh, 300 plus million people in America. So uh, the CDC will be providing guidance to um, federal and state rollout for the vaccines. There's emerging consensus that uh, the first priority populations will be frontline healthcare workers and first respondents, as well as um, uh, people over the age of 65 in long-term care facilities uh, who are um, particularly vulnerable from uh, infection because of both their age, their comorbidities, and where they reside in these facilities. Um, and so that um, process will be a collaboration between states 
the federal government, Operation Warp Speed, and private sector parties to help with assisting that rollout. Um, and then uh, beyond that, as vaccine becomes more widely available, uh, the prioritization framework will be released by the CDC likely later in November, and then states will build off of that uh, to create their um, specific rollout plans. Now, the question will be for employers, when will there be availability? We will uh, generally have a sense of that um, early in January because we'll have a better sense of production and rollout. Um, but for most employers, unless there's a, a, um, a particular aspect that has them in that um, first phase, uh, widespread, widespread availability of the vaccine really won't come till later in Q1 and early in Q2. Not only will we have Pfizer and Moderna, uh, there will be other manufacturers such as uh, AstraZeneca, Novavax, Johnson & Johnson, uh, who also have uh, phase three trials that are ongoing. So more manufacturers, more vaccine availability, uh, and the provider community will have scaled up its logistics and operational capabilities to provide vaccination services. So for most employers, we're really looking at Q2 is when um, there would be an opportunity uh, as part of the general population rollout. You know, you mentioned that we have two vaccine manufacturers right now. There's more on the way. Um, I want to take a moment to compare it to the rollout of testing. Um, part of what's hampered a lot of efforts to curb the disease has been the fact that so many tests came out from so many different manufacturers with widely varying rates of success. Yeah, it's something I've experienced myself. I've had to get a couple tests. You know, you get a, a point of care test. It's immediate, but, you know, you look up some of these numbers. You're talking about 50% efficacy, like 50% chance it tells you the right answer, uh, which is drastically low. You know, and part of the reason for that was that we had to move fast, that the FDA fast-tracked a lot of these uh, without a proper approval process or, or a, a um, fast-tracked approval process. And a lot of the distribution was left up to, at least my understanding of it, is private companies. So what we saw was, you know, a rapid availability of tests, but those tests, you never really knew what you were going to get. You didn't know if you could trust the results. Um, that's something that, having lived this a couple of times, you know, where, where someone that looks after my child tested positive on a point-of-care test, we all thought we had been exposed, you know, then he goes and he gets a, a more accurate test and he doesn't have it. But even then, that test isn't 100%. You know, like basically, it just, it was, we were lucky in that no one got it. Other people haven't been so lucky. And when you talk about it from the perspective of employers that are depending on these tests, um, that kind of mistake can lead to an, an increase in infection. Is it going to be the same thing with the with the vaccines, or are these a little bit more tightly regulated and controlled? The juxtaposition of testing and vaccines and how they've come to market is an interesting one. And I think there's a couple of key differences here. On testing, there are multiple different uh, testing technologies and different operating characteristics for these tests. 
So you had many more manufacturers of tests coming to market. Uh, and these tests could vary from antibody tests to antigen tests to PCR tests, rapid, um, on-site versus laboratory-driven. So the whole dynamics of testing is much um, is significantly complicated, and there's just a very complex um, taxonomy of testing and operating characteristics. So that's in the the actual supply, and then there's the actual administration of the tests, and there's multiple choices in terms of thinking through um, who is actually doing the testing. On the vaccine side, there's going to be less uh, vaccine manufacturers early on through 2021. We're really talking about a handful of manufacturers. Uh, and the science looks like they're all generally going to be relatively around the same efficacy of this 90 plus um, efficacy. Uh, and so uh, because everyone is sort of using the same principles of training the immune system around this spike protein, uh, you know, our expectation, my expectation is that many of these other manufacturers will also have very high efficacy rate. And the efforts on scaling up uh, vaccines has been ongoing over the last couple of months, whereas testing, we had to uh, ramp up incredibly quickly in those early days of the pandemic. So we have a much more, um, you know, limited set of manufacturers. We have much greater visibility on the supply. Um, the provisioners, the administrators of the vaccines um, are working in close co collaboration with the administration. So I think this is just going to feel different. There will be limited supply, uh, but I think the complexity that you're talking about in testing it'll just feel different with vaccines. So I hope those differences make sense. Um, and, and I'm, um, you know, I think we still have a lot of challenges ahead of us in vaccine rollout, but it is gonna feel different than testing. Uh, well, well, thank you so much, Sri, for, uh, for taking the time with us today. Uh, we really appreciate it. Listeners, we're always interested in suggestions you might have for what HRWorks should cover next. Please feel free to reach out to us on Twitter at HRWorks Podcast with any thoughts or concerns you have about the podcast in general. Thank you for listening. This is Jim Davis with HRWorks.